0: You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Today we're going to talk about digital identity. So in a smart city, the future cities, future urban places, how will we identify people, organisations and things in the digital realm? How will we decide who and what to trust? After listening to these guys, I think you'll trust nobody. (laughs) I've just listened to them over a coffee, it's scary. So so good luck listening to this. So we have futurists, designers, creative thinkers here, and we're gonna explore some ideas around the smart city to think about the barriers and benefits of a future where our identifying documents and objects that we carry around in our physical wallet and our physical purses become digital. And therefore, how do we protect that? And how do we we understand where it's being shared and what we're doing with that information? So on today's panel, we have Bridget Engler at the end there, who's a pracademic, (laughs) working across strategic foresight and design, innovation and entrepreneurship. She's a professional futurist and regularly collaborates on projects and programs, spanning speculative design, experiential and critical features, and prospective thinking in business and organisations. She is a senior lecturer at Swinburne Business School and a lead researcher with Project GELDOM that she's not gonna talk about today, but you can ask her about that afterwards. She is a stream leader in the Smart Cities Spaces for Living program. And um, Bridget's research explores the uh, nexus between design and foresight and emergent opportunities intersecting culture, systems and technology. Next to Bridget, we have Joseph Foros. He holds a PhD in theoretical physics on mathematical extensions to the general theory of relativity. He then spent several years in internet-related firms, including a stint at Silicon Valley in, with Nets, Netscape Communications, and has been a professional futurist for two decades. He teaches in big history and futures studies, and his research is focused on the coming civilization transition as well as potential futures of humankind and what lies beyond that. On the end here, we, next to me, we have John Phillips who is from um, 460 Degrees, and he is driven by a desire to make a positive, lasting difference to the organization's projects and people that he works with. He's a believer in continuous learning and the power of curiosity, and counts himself lucky to have worked in 10 countries across sectors from the space industry to finance and higher education. So, John is from the 460 Degrees Expert Management Agency, he's a partner of that and a champion of self-sovereign identity, which we'll hear about today, which is, um, and also emerging technologies for education. So, John believes that SSI is the best digital identity model model available for our global society and the next generation of our digital lives. So, we're all interested in what's going to happen with our digital identities in the future. Now, Bridget. Oh, am I going first? Well, no. Do we want to do your activity or do we want to just...
1: You've got a microphone. Oh, I hate microphones. You're going to need it
0: because the wind's going
1: I know. Okay, can I ask you all to stand up, please? If you've got things that you're really worried about, then we're going to move in a small space. So I'd like you to think of yourselves as embodying a position and a perspective in response to a particular question. And the question today is... Your perspective or your response to the the context or the proposition of digital identities in the smart city. And you two are playing this too. So I'd like you to imagine that we're in a three-dimensional matrix. Not that matrix, but we're going to create a matrix and we are embodying the position that we hold in the in response to the the provocation around digital identities uh, in the smart city. So at this end, can I ask you all to just form one line along here? Are you going to... One, one long line, one continuum. Just one continuum along here, please. Yeah. So kind of fall into line. And then I'm going to ask you to move around. As So Joe is going to start to move to the end of the line representing the optimism around digital identities in smart cities. So if you're feeling relatively optimistic around digital identities in smart cities, then please move further towards that end of the space. Do you want to identify what, define what digital identity is while we do this? Yeah.
2: Okay. Um. So, uh, let's think of digital identity, I'll move away from the speaker, Uh, as an approximation of your analogue self, or in fact, potentially many approximations. So, you will carry uh, in your wallet a number of things that identify you as a person. You may have driving licences, you may have credit cards, you may have other stuff, um, but as a person you probably have a number of identities that uh, may relate to you as a, a student or a parent or a child or a, a soccer player or an AFL player or whatever, the whole bunch of things that are to do with you having an identity or identities. And digital identity can be as many fold as your physical identity. So you could have as many identities as you have relationships, as you have roles in society. So my perspective of digital identity is that manifestation of those digi- of those physical identities you may hold or the relationships you may hold. Does that make any sense? Who asked the question about Ms. digital judgment. identity? Is that okay? Is that enough? Yes. So, so that we are living in an analogue world as physical human beings. Um, we have to uh, interact often with the digital services, digital providers and other things, and at that point you offer some formal way of identifying yourself or showing you have the right to do something. Facebook, Instagram, uh, your bank account, stuff like that, those are instances of digital identity Um, that you may hold.
1: Does that help? Okay, so how how do you feel if that's optimism and that is pessimism, I'm gonna move down towards that end, then how do you feel around digital identities in the smart city? Just (laughs) because he has to occupy that position occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) So we're deliberately using the terms optimism and pessimism as opposed to hope or positivity. So, do you feel optimistic? Well, depends on which future, which we'll get to. But in general, do you feel optimistic around digital identities in smart cities? Is it it in simplistic terms or reductionist? Good or bad? Yeah, hang hang around here somewhere. Okay. So, anyone who's feeling really optimistic up that end, anyone who's pessimistic pessimistic, pessimistic. down towards this end.
2: Okay. So, just have a
1: look around at where people are standing. So, this is a spectrum. It's a leaf. Pardon? The The neutral position is here. Do
2: you want to swap? Yeah,
1: around here. Because I I tried to count the bricks before. So, from where you're standing, Joe, this should be around the middle. Okay. Now, I'd like to think about the possibilities or the opportunities for change or just the opportunities that are, are made possible by digital identities in smart cities. What kind of agency do you feel around digital identity in smart cities? Is it something that is within your grasp? Is it something that you feel is beyond your grasp? Is it something that you feel you have agency or control over? Is it something that you can intervene in or not? So, if you imagine that I am high agency... It's up to you, you can make decisions, it's totally within your grasp or your reach or control, it's completely accessible to you. Or do you feel that you have low agency around digital identity, which is where Joe is standing? Yeah. So less control this way, more, more control over here. So think of me as being the most possible control. Oh. Yeah, slight agency, but not the most. Yeah, a bit, bit pessimistic over here. Would you mind if I asked why that position is the one you're in,
2: please? I, I think um, in the current world with the current uh, political system, I think that uh, digital identities will be abused and uh, used in malicious ways. Um, but um, I come from like an advocacy background and that's why I think actually... Uh, there's a potential there to, like, own, like, digital identities and make it um, uh, good for everyone rather than just a few people.
1: Yep. That's great. Thank you very much. I'm going to ask someone else. So, someone who would be willing to let me volunteer them to share why they're in the position they're in. Though I'm interested particularly in your response, given that you were asking around pessimistic versus optimistic. Would you mind talking to us about why you're standing where you are, please?
3: I guess in terms of thinking about the future or our agency within mediation, we do kind of have control to an extent, but then there's a lots of information in terms of what's shared and what isn't that we don't actually know about. So it's more about knowledge and access to knowledge and knowing sort of um, what the limits of control are, what the what you're actually sort of mediating. And then I think when you know the limits of that, that's kind of how you can negotiate your control. That's
1: great, thank you very much. I'm going to head over to you if, I, if you don't mind. You, you, you do have the freedom to say bugger off. No. Um, would you mind sharing why you're over here um, in pretty pessimistic and no control territory? Um,
0: I'm naturally very pessimistic Um, and I think where the internet is currently, um, kind of like Benjamin Bratton's kind of theory about like the stack and how they're all kind of, there's like all of these levels but they're not really, there's like cross between them but there's not really like a a across the board like system which I think is so messy and so sort of all over the place. I don't see that changing fast enough with how those rights could be
1: taken away. Great. Thank you very much. Because everyone wants to think that it's all uplifting and wonderful, I'm going to head down this end. Now, we've got some people who are just hanging around the middle. You're looking pretty comfortable there. Um, Would you like to... Would anyone in this kind of space like to talk about why you're sitting in this not very much control but not really sure about how you feel about it either? No? So you can say no, so that's fine. <laughs> no? Fine. Can I... People have more control than what they think? Okay, we might explore that during our discussion. Thank you. Can I ask you, because you've got a bit more optimism. I'm, I'm more in the middle. I just decided
0: that I'm tied kind to of the middle.
1: <laughs> okay, that, that's fine. That, that's... Yeah. I
0: still didn't decide. I'm very undecided. So. all right. All right. So
1: Well, we, we, yeah, we might come back to this. Uh, Jill, I know you, I work with you, so I'm going to volunteer you. Would you please... (laughs) This is what I do in my classes. (laughs) Jill, could you share why you're standing over here with low agency but a bit higher optimism, just above that?
4: Um, I think that... Basically, when you sign up for things, you for example, if you sign up for Facebook, you sign up because you want access to that connectivity, to be part of a community, to connect with your friends and family, but you don't read the small print, and the small print gives away your identity, allows them to mine that and utilize that information To push products, and let's be optimistic, to push products and services and things that you might be interested in. Um, So I think that's why I think there is a way that we can gain back control of our identity, and I think that new technology that is coming will help us to do that, but I don't think it's in place yet.
1: Thank you. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. It's not explicit information, so kind of where are the limits and the kind of legislation is kind of what the question should be, right, about identity and.
1: And that's what we'll explore a bit of in in a couple of minutes. I would like to just reminds me of
5: that line from Tom Waits: "The large print giveth, but the small print taketh away."
1: away. (laughs) Just as a, a side comment, I don't know if any of you know that um, maybe 10 years ago, Virgin Mobile did a, um, a test research project in London, and they went around asking people to sign up for a new mobile plan, um, and they asked people to read the fine print, because we all do that, don't we, when we sign up for stuff? And they then went back to those people and asked for their firstborn, and they said, why are you doing this? Or the people who were asked for their firstborn said, why are you doing this? And said, because that's what you agreed to sign over in the fine print that you didn't read. So, yeah, one bit of advice, read the fine print. Uh, I'm coming over here to ask you, why are you over here optimistic but only moderate agency?
2: Uh, uh, I'm a born optimist. I kind of... It's in my profile, I have to be. Uh, But um, I, I... what I'm trying to do right now, I guess, is something, The you know, the thing when you're trying to explain to your kids what you do and they never really understand that oh, you have kids. Um, so I'm actually doing something now which I'm hopeful is part of a kind of global movement to change the way identity works on the internet, that digital identity works. And if that movement is successful, then we have reason for hope. Um, it doesn't cure all ills. It's not some sort of Nirvana kind of silver bullet thing. But I have to believe I have some agency because otherwise what's the point of me trying to do this thing? Um, and I have to have some optimism because I believe there is a possible better future. There's also some probably very negative futures, yeah. but I'd rather have the positive ones.
1: Yeah, so. yeah no, that's great because we'll cover some of that this afternoon. What I would like you to observe before we sit down is this gap. <laughs> There's a big gap over here.
5: When we do this in classes, um, that's usually where American futurists stand. <laughs> Things so, are getting better and we can make them even, even better. better.
1: So There's this a distinct lack
5: today. Yeah,
1: this is the space of high optimism and high agency. The world is going to be amazing and we're going to make it happen. Or well, the world is going to be, as you said, great and greater. Uh, we'll come back to this. Thank you for playing. This is, uh, Joe might do a little... Do you want to do just two minutes on the Pollack game? and, Seeing as it's your game.
5: Well, Peter. <laughs> um, you can so,
1: sit down while we do this. So,
5: the, yeah. So the idea of this game is to ask you to think in terms of two things, your experience of how the world is going, whatever that means for you, and sometimes it's it's phrased in the sense of optimism, pessimism, and within that, how much agency or, or is change done to people or do people do change? So, and this leads to this sort of two-by-two two, uh, matrix. And, of course, this is important when you're thinking about, uh, especially if you're doing futures in organisations, leadership tends to be up here, followership tends to be down there. So the basic idea, the world is fantastic, it's getting better, we can make it even better, how wonderful. Down there, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but it doesn't have to. We can do something about it. Up here is the happiest, the world is is wonderful, it's getting better and better, we can't do anything about it, but who cares, right? This is Alfred E. Newman, what me worry. And down there is things are going to hell and we can't do anything about it. Australian farmers usually live down there. Um, but these are four different perspectives on the future. And what's interesting, of course, is that each, each mindset, because these are four mindsets, will look at the others and tend to caricature them. But the idea is to, to listen to people, that why, do you, why, are you, why did you choose this? This is literally your stance with respect to the future. And so why is that? And so the discussion of what has led to that, uh, why you have this particular stance, it's that discussion that's actually the important thing. Um, and to, to meet people where they are, to try and understand why is it that they see the world from that position as opposed to where I am or where somebody else is. So Thank you. you know, and that's called a Pollock game. P-O-L-A-K. Look it up on, not Google, on, <laughs> on <laughs> DuckDuckGo. <laughs>
0: Okay, thank you very much for that um, overview of the way we are sitting at the moment before listening to these talks. So I'm now going to invite each of the panellists to give their position statement, their five to ten minutes on on how they think about this question and, and why they have the stance that they do. And I'll start with you, John, if you'd like to have a go.
2: Sure. Uh, so, my, my story on uh, self sovereign identity starts with a few beers in a pub in Guildford in the UK, uh, uh, catching up with a very close friend of mine that started work the same day I started out in the same company. Um, and I was catching up with him after many years of not seeing him. And he said he's working for a company called Evernim, which I'd never heard of. Um, and they'd written this software on digital identity, which is I found vaguely interesting. And then he said they gave it away. And they given it away to the Linux Foundation as an open source so- uh, software. And I looked at him and said, why did you do that, Andy? And he said, uh, uh, because if you want to produce a platform for a global identity, you've got to scale very fast, very quickly. And the best way to do that is to use something like the Linux Foundation as your, as your method. So he, he and Evanim um, uh, released their software to what is the Hyperledger Foundation, which is a, a group of um, ledger-based technologies. And the self-sovereign has a ledger technology to it, but it's not identity on the blockchain, as you might understand it. Um, And as you told the story and a few more beers, I got to more and more interested, started looking up some of the projects that are associated with it. um, And they are genuinely very, very uh, encouraging as to what the possibles are. So so for me, uh, it became a kind of a personal exploration. I just finished doing what was called a uh, a post-mortem on a project that had failed for university over sort of a period of about six years on identity and access management. So I was kind of fresh off, off of a, a list of litanies that had gone wrong with a, one particular university, which wasn't the university these guys are from. Um, and I felt that there's, prog- there's got to be a better way. And the other thing I think that struck me about the uh, self-sovereign movement is it has a, at its core a set of principles. There's a guy called Christopher Allen who uh, couched the 10 principles of self-sovereign identity. And a few of them that I'll pick out are the one is that everybody has the right to a digital existence. So that you shouldn't be denied that right. It shouldn't be a a single organization's gift to give you a digital identity. You should have a right to one or more if you choose. Um, Others include things like portability and interoperability. So if you have these digital identities, the wallet analogy I used at the beginning is one where you could take your identity from one container to another, so you're not beholding to Apple or Google or Facebook or anybody else. If you've got an identity of some form or other, you should be able to take that with you and move it and carry it. Um, there are some there are some very interesting world uh, projects right now by two large organizations, the UN and the World Bank, uh, which are relevant to this discussion as well. Um, one is called ID2020, uh, which is the uh, UN's uh, initiative to try and get the unregistered people of about 1.2 billion in the world to have a digital identity because it becomes increasingly difficult to actually have agency in society unless you have some form of digital identity as we kind of move forward. And the World Bank has a similar project uh, called ID4D, which is to help the unbanked be banked. Now if you're an optimist, as I choose to be, uh, you may think of this as a possible good future. If you're a pessimist, you may think we're shackling all those poor people that don't actually have an identity and now we're going to make them have one. I choose the former positive viewpoint that says actually it would be a good thing if people that don't have a bank account can have a bank account and the people who don't have an identity can have an identity. Um, The other initiatives that Self Sovereign has, um, people like the Red Cross uh, International and Australian working with them, there are hunger refugees in Myanmar and others are looking at ways to get uh, refugees to have an identity when they arrive at a camp and a a bunch of other things. There's some very interesting work. And for me, the most, you know, this last week even, uh, I've, uh, been asked to. I'm working with the, uh, as Jill and some others are, on the governed guardianship problem. So if you think about identity being a thing that you uh, ideally have agency of yourself, you control it. Um, you may at times need others to look after you. You may be a child and have parents. You may have parents that are aging. You may be incapacitated for a while. At these points in time, someone else might need to look after you. So there needs to be a way for a digital identity to be looked after, even if the person who is the owner of it, if you like, is unable to do so. So that, that involves this term guardianship. So we need to work out how guardianship works in the digital world and how best to affect that um, in a way that is consistent with society and law and, and so on. So that, that, uh, there's an APAC group, and I'm, I'm one of the co-chairs of the APAC group for guardianship, which is, I think, really exciting. Did I, did I surprise you? <laughs> no, yes. Sorry. I could have okay. kept on. No, just...
0: Thank you, John. Um, we'll now move on to Joe. You could have done that for me. I
5: could have. I'm sorry. Um, well, I, I came to this from, you know, I, I drank the Kool-Aid of Silicon Valley back in the 90s. I worked for Netscape. It was a wild ride for a year. Um, I was hired on the 6th of January 1997 on a Monday, and by Saturday I was in San Francisco at the mid-year party and um, where there there was a lion that walked down the aisle for the the sales kickoff. That's sort of the rah, rah, rah. So I signed up for the internet as it was meant to be, which was open access sharing. I'm a theoretical physicist by training, so I saw the World Wide Web when it was born. We were accessing it back in 94. Um, And I've watched with horror basically what's happened to it since then Um, you know so I would love to think that all these things were good um, but the track record now is that this stuff is colonised and um, appropriated by interest groups and power groups and then basically abused so for me there is the promise but there is also the peril and I come at this from the point of view that that power will seek to overreach what it has and acquire more. So what can we do to stop that? Um, you know, if you read the Constitution of the United States of America, you'll see that most of the first half a dozen or so amendments uh, basically designed to limit the power of government over citizenry because the people who drafted that had just escaped from a, an overreaching power uh, across the ocean. Um, so I... I would welcome the positive benefits, but I just don't know how you can push up against that degree of power. And for me, that's the, that's the game, is how do you retain your self-sovereign identity in the midst of a machine that is trying to basically render your data from you. Um, so for me, the, the thing is really about surveillance capitalism, which is what this is called. Uh, Shoshana Zuboff, who is now a retired professor of uh, management at Harvard Business School, uh, wrote a book this year called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, and she tells the story of how this happened. Um, Google invented it. Facebook perfected it. Uh, Microsoft adopted it. And now Amazon are exporting it into the real world, essentially, and, and Apple is doing its best to try and resist that. Uh, so they're the least worst of the, the, the frightful five, as it goes. Um, but after the dot combustion, which is one of the reasons hundreds of us got fired from Netscape, uh, Google saw its money, uh, its its income stream dry up, but they discovered by accident that you could gather this data. It's called the Carol Brady moment, where uh, because in in something like April or May of 2002, yeah, this is this is a great story. This, um, the AdSense group had just been set up, um, Schmidt had just been appointed CEO. Larry and Sergey decided they needed someone who was an adult in the room to run the business and he was sharing an office with the AdSense or the, the Ad, AdWords group, and they came in one morning to find this spike in searches at 48 minutes past the hour for four hours with a gap and then a smaller one. And they're trying to work out what the bloody hell is this? Carol Brady's maiden name. Why? Who wants to be a millionaire? At 48 minutes past the hour, in, in those time zones... East Coast, Central, Mountain, Pacific, Hawaii. And I think Alaska was in there too, but there was a tiny little thing. So they realised then that there's, there is actually a way of, and because people had signed up now and they, they had accounts, and so they could now work out people's interests from their, um, their search terms. And so they started to keep that data. Now, Zubov calls this behavioural surplus. You basically gather this this surplus data from the data exhaust that everyone gives off by hanging around on the internet. And so this led to the first thing, which is the the, um, extraction imperative, gather more data. You remember um, Short Circuit with the little robot, number five? Need input? Need data, right? So the machine starts to, to gather the data. This then leads to the second imperative, which is the prediction imperative. If your job is selling ads, which is Google and Facebook, they sell ads, their real client are the advertising agencies. So if you can predict what people are likely to respond to, then you sell better ads and you get more money. But this then inevitably leads to the third imperative, which is the behavioural modification imperative, which is the best way to predict people's future behaviour is to cause it. Um, And this was brought into sharp relief, of course, with the 2016 presidential election, um, how people's behaviour was modified. So this is the track. Surveillance capitalism is now the business model in Silicon Valley. Everyone wants your data, and they'll take it from you without your knowledge, permission or consent. Um, Because even if you do read the fine print, as I did when I bought my Sony noise-cancelling headphones and said, no, you can't have that, deleted the app. they reserve the right to change those conditions at any time without notifying you. Guess what? It's always changed in whose benefit? Not yours. So I'm deeply mistrustful of of organisations like this because it's it's not even... The old maxim is that if the product is free, then it's not the product you are. You're not even the product anymore. You are the discarded carcass of the the, the actual product, which is the data that is then on-sold to advertisers. Uh, and so I encourage you to read Zuboff's book. Get the hard copy. Don't get a Kindle edition because Amazon watches you read it. Um, and am I paranoid? Eh. I did a workshop for the Australian Department of Defence in May where I was talking about this because I actually regard it as a threat to national security and defence. And people were thinking, oh, Joe's a bit paranoid. He must be wearing a tinfoil hat. But one of the participants in this workshop put his hand up and said, I just want to say... I'm ex-NSA. The situation is actually much worse than that.
0: <laughs> okay, Bridget, tell us something good. <laughs> you probably came to the wrong person.
1: What, what I can do though is um, suggest that you, if you don't want to read um, that book, uh, read the report that was released by Amnesty International uh, late last week. Uh, that talks about uh, the, the use and abuse of data um, and uh, it being a, a, a risk to human rights. Um, it's a very easy-to-read report if you search it using your preferred browser. Brave is another addition to your list of Google alternatives. Um, and the Am- Amnesty International, pardon? Firefox. Firefox oh, fire, yeah, he'll do this the whole time. Um, the, the, I would recommend reading it. Um, it's, a, it's a good read, it's not a huge read, um, and it talks about it very much from that human rights perspective, which is kind of my segue into why I'm here. Um, I, I sit somewhere uh, floating across the middle in terms of agency, but I'm not as optimistic as, as John is. And I think this uh, is because of where I sit as a futurist. I don't believe that anything uh, we're going to be told is, is going to be the way it is. Um, this is not just my my learning in the discipline of future studies. It is my acceptance of the future not being a destination uh, or even a single future that we're going to land in or get to. It's not a single point or place in time that we go, oh, now it's the future. Uh, it, it doesn't happen like that. It's constantly emerging. It's constantly evolving. And there is no one fixed future. There are multiple alternative futures. Uh, and I'm not going to lecture you about all of that today. But it's simply understanding that, If we don't like these images or futures that we are presented with, then we have to have agency or at least harness our agency and acknowledge that we have some capacity for change and use it in the way that we believe is good. And when we look at what is good, we need to consider what is good for us versus someone else, which is why we played that game, to see where other people sit in response to the same question. Um, And and we will revisit that game once we've finished our discussion uh, this afternoon because it will not only give you a sense of what might have shifted for you, but also what might have shifted for others. Uh, Because information and awareness, which was your point about knowledge and and knowing what's going on, um, is the thing that can potentially liberate us, but also it's the thing that gives us at that agency um, right here, right now, I'm probably closer to the, the, the Joe position. Uh, the scepticism, the cynicism and, and awful, a, a little bit of fear around it. Um, I think that's probably my responsibility as a Gen Xer to feel a little bit of that. Uh, but I also think that um, the possibilities of the self-sovereign identity are there to be explored, explored and potentially exploited for good. Uh, these are things that are potentially available to us Things that we can use um, not only for ourselves but for the beneficiaries. Understanding how many people are in the world so that we can ready ourselves for for what a population that is currently not very well defined might need um, over the next 50 years or so. So, yeah. Okay, now, has anybody got any
0: questions they would like to direct at a member of the panel? Let's make them work for their supper.
6: One of the big issues is that uh, what we're talking about is in historical terms quite recent, isn't it? It's sort of like post-2000, so it's sort of like 15, under 20 years old. And the reality is that technology is moving faster than society can actually react to it. And um, But eventually it does. It does catch up um, before the next technological change. Um, and... Um, so, and you can see pushback already, can't you? I mean, what happened with the robo-tax, for instance? You know, they had to drop that, and I mean, that was an abuse of data, uh, which was misapplied, and uh, now they've dropped it. And a lot of people got hurt in the meantime, but that's the way history works, right? And, um, and in fact, the, uh, the amount of legislation that you'd have to introduce to change the power that Google and Facebook have, for instance, wouldn't be all that hard. Uh, basically, you just have to treat them the same laws that publishers have to deal with and their business would be irrevocably changed. And um, so um, what I found is that human beings by nature are pessimistic, right? I mean, the last 50 years have seen one of the biggest improvements in the human condition and if you interview people around the world, they all think the world's going to hell uh, but if you look at all the facts, in fact, the world's getting a lot better, there are less wars, health's improved, longevity's improved. On every metric, things are getting better, but people are still think pessimistic. So do you think that that pessimism is what's affecting our attitudes to the digital world? Um, because in many ways, when you think about the analogue world, it was quite different. You could still gather information in the analogue world, couldn't you? And uh, it's just a lot harder. But you could still do it because there's a lot of information in the public domain that people could get. So um, do you think that the sort of natural pessimism that sort of generally floats around the
2: world is overstated? I'm the optimist. Uh, uh, Firstly, uh, I've read the uh, Shoshana Zuboff book and also uh, Rosalind Barden's Who Can You Trust, which is another kind of book of a similar style to read as to why why the trust models that we have are, are really quite fascinating now uh, with the digital age in particular. But to your point around, we, we actually live in better times than most of us realize, I absolutely agree with. Um, and the guy called Hans Rosling, who unfortunately passed away at the end of last year, um, he was on many TED lectures. He's the guy that does his animated bubbles of data around population growth and, and life expectancy and stuff. Really excited deliverer of data, which is a remarkable skill. Um, and he wrote a book called Factfulness Says unfortunately he was dying of cancer and it's around the whole story of if you like the, the very rapid improvement in the quality of life for almost every population on earth and the fact that we still have a 1950s mindset about the way we think about the planet and about people and population growth and so on and it's, it's because of the way we were taught when, when our parents were taught or wherever and we've got this kind of old mindset about stuff that isn't the current reality so I think there's there is, a, uh, there is a positive side to data which says some data actually is good around the Earth, and some of the data that you can choose to look at is a good thing in terms of what it tells us is happening. So we tend to be living longer. We tend to be having less diseases. We tend to be in a better shape than we were 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um I think the uh, the pessimism, though, I, I I do agree with. I mean, I'm as you can tell by my accent, besides living in a few countries, I have a bit of Britishness in me, and uh, the the whole phenomenon. I realised how long I'd been away from from the UK when the Brexit thing happened. Uh, I had no idea that would happen. Uh, that was just remarkable, and I've been trying to understand how that might happen. Um, and a lot of that, I think, happens. Uh, there is no doubt a, an interference in the, in the process of that referendum that's now being traced back to the same sources that were traced back to the U.S. elections. So a deliberate, if you like, nudging of, of behavioral science techniques to make people vote in certain ways or not to vote. So I think some of the pessimism is actually being driven from the outside. Yes, we, we have a tendency to be uh, somewhat pessimistic as, a, as, a, as individuals or as a species, but we can be made more pessimistic by the, the information that's pushed to us. And the, the whole phenomena of like the internet bubble where because you like this or you've looked at that, here's more of that or it takes you further and further. There's a, there's a very interesting um, Wired article where one of their journalists decided to go yes to everything. Just yes, 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 yes. And over the week, the, the information that was pushed to them on, I think it was using Facebook as the example, got more and more and more extreme. It ended up on sort of, sort of white nationalistic sort of pages or whatever else because he just went Yes. So the algorithms that are kind of dictating what gets pushed to you get affected by what you declare an interest in. So kind of one of the antidotes to the pessimism is to try and do things as anonymously as you can by using a, a Firefox browser, not logging in, and so on. So you, you see the real news and not the news the news thinks you should see. Um, and that's, that's becoming increasingly difficult. So I think you're right about the pessimism, and I think some of that is because of the very algorithmic nature in which content is sourced and pushed to us, uh, and you have to find ways, unfortunately, you have to find ways to to, in Rosalind Barton's words, find someone you can trust um, and, and, and sort of use that source as the one that you prefer to use. I, I try myself, I use three or four different news sources and even ones I don't like um, because I kind of feel I should be subjected to what other people are hearing too. Yeah. That's sort kind of the way I adopt it. Do you want
5: um, Thank you for the question. I'd like to distinguish between pessimism and scepticism. So for me, the position is basically sceptical which is we're sold the, you know, the Kool-Aid um, as how these things are going to be so wonderful for us. But behind that, I mean, you know, if if, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So that's that's the scepticism that comes to me. So the stance is pessimistic response to the motivation of the the power that is telling us how wonderful things are. So it's really scepticism underlying that, which is, I don't believe you because <laughs> history tells us that whenever there is some new form of wealth extraction, it'll be cranked up to the max. So the historical parallel here is with early industrial capitalism, 200 years ago. Now, those, the, the industrial capitalists didn't regulate, self-regulate themselves into treating their workers better. This was imposed upon them, and I think the same thing is, is likely to happen with um, information capitalism, which is what this is, of which surveillance capitalism is a particularly feral sort of offshoot. Um, it's, you know, basically gone rabid. Um, so to me, and, and yes, we are we naturally pessimistic because that's got survival value. The 99 times that that thing that I thought was a snake in the grass is actually a vine, the one time that isn't a vine and is a snake will lead to me being more, you know, having more children. <laughs> So, the pessimism has survival value, uh, and couple that with scepticism around people telling us wonderful stories, um, I think that's the way to treat the world, is demonstrate to me that this is not a con.
1: And I probably come from a similar position, uh, and I would also challenge all of the good news stories with the reality of the world that we are faced with in around 50 years from now. So it's all very well for people to be living longer. It's all very well for us to be relying on amazing technology to automate and do incredibly wonderful things, but it's not the silver bullet. It's not gonna fix the state of our planet in 50 years. So it's going to be hotter, um, it's, and I'm not telling stories. If you have seen what November 29 is depicted as in Blade Runner, then have a look at what Beijing and San Francisco and parts of Sydney were looking like last week and the week before. That's more the reality that we're going to be living in. So, I appreciate that we are eradicating disease, um, but I also know that some diseases are coming up in parts of the world that hadn't had them before. Um, So, I am very sceptical around the notion of futures being positive and wonderful because actually, they're not. Um, And we need to do something about that. So, that's the agency that we need to harness because if we want... To live in a world that is going to support human life, then we need to do something about it because it's actually not the planet really that's need, that needs fixing. It's us. We need to sort our shit out because the planet will do fine without us. And I'm not. And that's not a neoliberalist response to that question, which is what some have accused it of being. It's a we need to do something, and we are a part that the urgency is is incredibly significant, uh, and we, we need to just stop playing around with it and do something about it. Yeah, so, we're not, just,
0: we're not just eradicating <laughs> disease, we're eradicating a lot of other things as well. Well,
1: we've, if you read the litany around koalas, well, they're now facing extinction. Yeah. Um, and, and some of that is not necessarily 100% true and it's not necessarily the given future, which is the point I want to make, that we don't have to say, oh, well, that's it, koalas are done, move on to the next thing. We can mitigate... Change. We can ameliorate some of the things that we face. We're not going to fix it. Um, we can't. It, it, I, I'm probably preaching to converted, and I apologise for that. But you know, we're, we're running. We're, the planet's going to be hotter. It's going to be drier. We're going to be challenged feeding the population. Even if the you know, the, the anticipated eight and a half, eight point nine billion um, in in fifty or so years drops back to eight billion, we're still going to have a challenge doing that. Um, we are going to have a challenge getting anywhere. We're going to have big challenges building. We're running out of river sand. Uh, we can't continue to build the kinds of, of of edifices that we have seen as depictions of futures that are optimistic and um, and, and these amazing. Um, incredibly lush gardens that have been propagated by all sorts of alternative agriculture. That's just not a realistic depiction. It doesn't mean we can't achieve it, though. So these images of future are really critical. We need to have those images of futures in order to say, what can we move towards? Because if we don't have hope around self-sovereign identity, if we don't believe that we have these possibilities, then we'll just go off into the dark corner and that's not good for anyone.
0: Oh, yeah, I forgot about digital identities. (laughs) Okay, has someone else liked to make a comment on any of this? Ooh, excellent. I have another taker.
7: Hi. Um, A few years ago, I was over in Berlin and went to the Stasi Museum, if anyone's been there, and that was kind of terrifying, just the scale of the surveillance, which is what we have now. Um, Given the... Smart city project that Google are trying in Toronto. Do you think that there's a model where that could work for citizens? I mean, you know, I sort of see a, a smart city would just be a modern city where we data is captured. It doesn't have to be called a special smart city. Um, and it's one of also what you think about the idea that potentially advertising is the issue. Really, Google is just serving. You know, it, it's and surveillance capitalism. Uh, if it was weren't for advertising, Google would not have the imperative to capture all the data. Um, and do you think that, getting back to the smart city idea, the the Toronto model is purely based on capturing data. Is there any sort of what's the benefit potentially for people,
5: the inhabitants of that
2: city? I have the role as the optimist. I'll go first.
5: Well, I honestly don't know. So, so
2: Okay. So so uh, so we're talking about Toronto uh, Cy- uh, Sidewalk Labs, the uh, Alphabet as it's part of the Google family. It's uh, The Alphabet is the top, and Google is one of the subsidiaries of Alphabet. Um, Sidewalk Labs is another subsidiary of Alphabet, but just think of them as Google if you want to think of it that way. Um, uh, the project's been going for quite a few years now, and it, it's got a really interesting history because... Uh, because of that number of years, is that there have been a number of privacy concerns, a number of public debate. They actually opened up the whole, the, the guy who was running it opened up a live, I think it was a Reddit chat, to anybody in Toronto that wanted to participate and asking him questions around the data and, and privacy and so on. So it's a really quite interesting kind of, Chronology around the kind of conversations and how things have gone. Uh, It it doesn't. uh, It doesn't read well if you're a privacy advocate. It doesn't. In fact, I think one of the problems for Google is uh, uh, they they can't do a thing right right now. In the sense that if if they do anything, people will believe that it's tainted by Google. If you believe that, it's impossible for a company, the eight thousand pound gorilla, to kind of move without crushing something underneath it. So I think they're in that situation. Uh, The the data that is generated by the sensors in, the, uh, in Toronto will not be owned by Google. And that's one of the conditions of that contract. So, so it's not Google that will have that data, but that doesn't make me necessarily feel any better. I, I, I kind of don't think that Google are the only epicenter of things that are bad. I think the trouble, we, we were talking about this over a coffee, that the, the sort of uh, uh, data exhaust processing, uh, surveillance capitalism, this sort of stuff, this is, no, this is no longer just the preserve of Google. It could be the preserve of any company. So we need to ask ourselves, as you were saying, what do they want the data for what 's the benefit they 're promising mm-hmm. uh, the type of benefits, and this is where we get back to maybe the smart cities sort of conversation tend to be things like you know be- better investment in infrastructure, flow of pedestrians uh, a bunch of other sort of things that, that you 're going to get as a benefit but um, it does it does worry me that the most of the smart cities uh, investments and uh, projects tend to be focused on this wonderful shiny Internet of Things stuff. You know, even the even the EU, who've got the GDPR and the other things that sort are of behind them, they're experimenting in six different cities with what they call quite li- nicely the humble lamp post. And the humble lamp post, which has got a great name for a thing that's not necessarily so humble, is is a as a sort of pole with sensors on it. You know, and an LED light is the first thing it does. Um, uh, but they're experimenting to find out, I guess, which is the best humble lamppost that they can use. But they're going to put a lot of sensors on these on these devices. So so what are they going to sense and why? And, and I think the first thing a, a truly smart city should do is to have a contract with the citizens of the smart city that says this is, this is our promise for the future. This is what we want to do. This is why we want to do it. And this is how we're going to do it. So is that okay? You know? And if they start from that point of view, that might be a better place than seeing all these funny sensors appear everywhere and wondering what the heck's going on. So I I kind of think the Toronto Sidewalk Labs thing, perversely, I think maybe Google aren't trying to be so bad in that instance, but I don't think they could be seen as doing good because they're Google now. So I think this is the way it is.
1: And I I would agree um, 100% that it's good to be sceptical about that particular project. And the possibility of of data to help us actually get through that turbulence and that discomfort that is ahead could be really useful. We just need to know what we're getting into. And this is when not only the scepticism comes in, but asking about the consequences of handing over data now. Um, uh, We actually live in sometimes quite a regulated environment in Australia Um, There are parts of Australia that are under water restrictions. Well, it's just the way you live now. Um, And there are other parts of Australia that have had water restrictions introduced in the last few weeks. So if if cities were able to respond more intuitively um, to those kinds of challenges, maybe that would help not just with resource use, but resource redeployment. And maybe that is a way of helping us get through the challenges. Uh, However, smart cities are usually understood as data technocentric technocratic hubs Um, and that's not what they have to be Uh, I like the, the sense of a sentient city so a city that is an organism that is able to respond and be responsive to things that that engage and interact within it. Because when we think about smart cities, not only is it technology, but it seems to be linked very intrinsically to technology, infrastructure, and maybe people. We forget that there are non-human life forms in cities we forget that there are characteristics of some materials and some form that are like living. So, concrete is, is not an organic material, but it has a sense of life in the way that it, it functions. And we need to be building that into what we conceive of as, as smart cities.
5: My concern with Google or Facebook or any of these is that they might start out wanting to do the right thing, uh, but they are so addicted to data now that they can't let it go. Um, and I think that's what happened to Google. I mean, they started off the motto was, don't be evil. That has vanished from the, the corporate... Um, uh, well, it, it, you just don't find it anymore. It, it's, it's quietly disappeared from that. Define evil. And, and so, yeah, well. Um, so, it, again, it's, it's... The world we live in is that people want things for free. And that, that's, I think that's the issue. People are willing to trade a lot of things because it's free. But it's not free. It's just not something that people are aware of because they've never been surveilled. My parents came from Eastern Europe after the Second World War. My mother crawled through a minefield to escape from the communist bloc. My father followed a few years later, they met here. Now, when I went back to visit relatives, it turns out I was surveilled because my father was a revolutionary and we have the same name. And so, you know, there was a time there where I could have gone to see my um, my dossier if I'd bothered to go back. Um, but Realising in retrospect that you actually had was it the, the analogue form of surveillance, which was, you know, guys in black cars with binoculars and notebooks, which was harder, and they could be called off, um, as, as happened, because my uncle was in the party and so he told the cops to leave me alone. Now, not everyone has that benefit. And the idea that, you know, I don't have anything to hide, therefore I've got nothing to fear, that might be true now. But governments change. And things that were once legal may become illegal, the way that things, once, things were once illegal, like gay marriage, are now legal. So you never know. If that data never goes away, you never know how that's going to be used by subsequent governments. And that's the future's perspective, which is history tells us that there is overreach. There is always overreach. And things might be getting better, and I, I agree. It's, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, the... the, the um, the the benefits of of life that have have accrued over the last 200 years but there is a cost and again I'm I'm just worried that that these organisations are so addicted to the data that they can't give it up and governments as well because governments want to camp on that because they have a different agenda, theirs is typically around defence and security Uh, but governments are capable of overreach as well every now and then
0: Okay, do
3: we have another question? Anyone want
1: to have another? Yes, good. John, if you can uh, tell us if there's any or the most interesting um, uh, application of SSI
3: or um, uh, how SSI is different from
1: the Gov ID or the DTA? that's it currently been
2: implemented by the Australian government? Okay, uh, so that's two questions. Um, so uh, there there are some real live operational solutions using the self sovereign identity architecture approach. Uh, a, a few sort of um, markers. Um, self sovereign identity is as an open standard as well as open source software. So the W3C, IETF, Oasis, and Diff uh, foundations are providing the standards that are published. Uh, and the source is open source software. So the, the one I'm going to talk to is, um, uh, it's UK-based, but it has an international uh, potential, which is, uh, in the UK's health service, uh, a number of the specialists are now very mobile. They go from one hospital to another quite frequently on short-term contracts, and so the surgeons, doctors, and so on. And uh, every time they arrive at a new place, they have to present the manila folder of all the paperwork that declares them to be a surgeon. You know, the the Royal College of Surgeons, the the university they went to, and so on. It takes five days to process the paperwork that the doctor provides. um, And they added it all up. There's about 25,000 doctor days a year are lost while they're trying to make sure this is the right doctor to do whatever it is they're meant to be doing. Um, and the uh, True ID, which is T-R-U-U ID, was set up by a doctor in the UK who observed this problem himself. He, he's a specialist in infectious diseases, and he created a company called True to actually enable doctors to arrive with a, a digital version, if you like, of those credentials that they otherwise would carry. So the model works by uh, the uh, Royal College of Surgeons and the other uh, registrars of doctors in the UK Recognizing providing a digital authentication the doctor then can carry this when they choose to carry it to the hospital They choose to go to present to those hospitals and they can then verify that these credentials were given to this person by an issuing Authority that they haven't changed them and they haven't been revoked those four tests Um, And that works within minutes. It's it's live now in uh, three university hospitals in the UK And they hope to extend it wider into the NHS of the UK uh, and that may save hundreds of millions of pounds, if not potentially billions of pounds, in lost up a year in the UK. So that's, that's one of the models we'd like to bring out to Australia uh, as a sort of an example of, of how it works. And there's a guy called Man Reach who runs it in the UK who wants to come to Australia, too. So uh, we're hopeful that that's a conversation we can bring into the, the Australian sort of uh, e- ecosystem. Um, now the second question uh, was was it about how it works. Was the data the oh, trust ID, Gov ID, and so on? I, do, I normally use a sparkly ball at this point. I have a I have a handheld. I have a demo version of how I explain self-sovereign, which uses little fuzzy felt characters and stuff. But it's too windy. Um, so so if you think about something like um, a, a centralized authority giving you an identity, so a federated identity or a trusted third-party model. So the government gives you an identity. Another organization says you can use that identity, so you offer this identity. What happens is the issuer, the trusted third-party kind of model, gets a ping, if you want to think of it that way, like a, like a message that says, is this okay? So even if you use, and I agree with Joseph, that one of the best companies in the world from a privacy point of view would be Apple. Apple have their own identity solution, Apple ID. If you use your Apple ID, uh, say so your bank says you can use Apple ID, Apple will get a ping from the bank to say, this Apple ID is being used, is it Okay. Now, Apple, who are a great company, will only remember that data for 30 days. But they will remember it for 30 days. And other models are less good in that sense. They will remember every time you use their identity, every single occasion with whoever you're using with the date and the time. So they'll know every bank you've been to, every rental agency you went to, Uh, Even the barista of cafe you went to, so so that's the trouble with a with a trusted third party identity, a a structure like a government provided identity, is you're using the single identifier every time you do something, and the the kind of third wheel, if you like, in the conversation knows you're using it, and and that's where I get the the, even though I'm the optimist, I I sigh towards my friend Joseph here in terms of a bit of pessimism on it, (laughs) skepticism.
0: Okay. I, mean, so I, I wouldn't say oh, Apple is
2: the best. I'd say <coughs> the least worst. Yeah. <laughs> that's the pessimist. About as good as it gets for
0: now. That's
5: the sceptic. The
0: sceptic. The Are there any um, other questions? Uh,
5: can I just say, um, if you're interested in, because people keep saying, "Look, if you don't like it, why don't you just don't use it?" I mean, I've, I've tried to get off Google. It's not. It's not possible. But there's a, a journalist, American named Kashmir Hill. So Kashmir, as in the province, Hill. Um, She's a privacy pragmatist, she calls herself. She used to work at Gizmodo, but they fired her because they fired everyone who was any good there. She now works at the New York Times. But she actually did the experiment for real, not as a, as, a, as a thought experiment, she did it for real. So she got one of her colleagues to build a virtual private network, and each week she would cut off one of the frightful five. So Apple, well, that was, Apple was last. So first was Amazon, then Facebook, then Google, then Microsoft, then Apple, then all five in week six. And it would record who was trying to ping what. And she recorded this, look her up, um, it's called um, Leaving the Tech Giants or something like that, and she said it was impossible. It was absolutely impossible. And when it was all six, all five, it was a nightmare. Um, She also has a very famous TED Talk um, called The House That Spied on Me." where she decided to install all smart devices or Internet of Things stuff. And again, going through a virtual private network, she had a colleague on the other side of the United States who knew nothing about what she was doing and was just watching the data. Knew when they woke up, knew when they were on holiday, all sorts of stuff. Um, You know, her husband actually is the president of the Freedom of the Press Foundation, so he got her an an Alexa for Christmas, which I thought was just, (laughs) oh! But their daughter loves it. And so when they, they cut off Amazon for a week, the daughter was crying because she couldn't watch her video. She couldn't listen to music in her car because it came through Microsoft. She couldn't, and, and then of course, she couldn't use her Apple stuff because she's, she's a self-confessed Apple mm-hmm. fangirl. She couldn't use any of her, her stuff in the last week or in the, in the second last week. Uh, but the, the, the house that spied on her is uh, she actually won an award for that. So this And this led to the idea of, now how do you get rid of this? Because she's been banging on about this for a number of years because she actually comes from a legal background. So I encourage you to have a look at that to mm. see just how pervasive it is. And so when I moved from my um, position over there as, as the marker to my natural position, which is pessimistic, sceptical, but agency, it is possible to have small acts of defiance mm. against the data capitalists or the, yeah. the data you know, surveillance capitalists. And yeah. so, you know, don't use Google Mail, use Proton Mail. Don't use Text, use Signal, or Wire, or Threema, or any of these encrypted messaging apps. Yeah. I mean, there are there are things that you can do. Shoshana Zuboff says that, and I agree, that the the surveillance capitalists want want things to be frictionless, which means it's as smooth as possible to, to get your data from you. Be the friction.
1: Yeah, be the, be the friction. If it, you have to enter something three times, then that's fine. You've also just reminded me there is another project which was started by Aral Balkan, um, which is A-R-A-L-B-A-L-K-A-N, and it's called Small Technology. So it's peer-to-peer, copyleft, um, and a, a, an independent, non-related-to-government or large organisations uh, project that focuses on small technology. So ra- alternatives to the, what we would consider the, you know, the what you saw, the you The Fractious Five or whatever it was you Frightful. said before? Frightful Five. Yeah, so that's another one. Small technology is the project and it's Aral Borkhan. So A-R-A-L and then surname is B-A-L-K-A-N. He's been writing about surveillance capitalism um, and the challenges around uh, privacy uh, and data use for a number of years.
6: Okay. Uh, One of the challenges is that in fact, there are a lot of positives to data collection. And, in fact, uh, it's through data collection that uh, people can make more accurate decisions about policy and uh, strategy and stuff like that. I mean, you only have to look at, say, weather predictions, how they're much more accurate today than they were even five years ago, or traffic management. That's all to do with data collection. So how do you mediate between good data collection and bad data collection? So that's one question. The second question was the... um, one of the problems that I see about the internet is the um, uh, the pushing out of information, right? And uh, wh- one of the problems with um, sort of trying to assess what's true or not is, if you apply a scientific method, is that it's basically done on the probabilities of information to sort of say... Because you can't prove that anything is absolutely 100% true, right? So, if you get to 90%, you could sort of say, well, It's probably true and uh, the odds are that it's true. The problem with the internet is that the 90% and the 10% are getting equal airtime. And sometimes the 10% is getting more airtime than the 90%. And so consequently, society is actually not coming to grips with what reality is or what the truth is. And I think climate change is a classic example. So how do you deal with those two challenges?
5: Um, the response to the first question is, data collection by itself is not bad, but who owns the data? And that's, that's the thing. Is do, do people who collect it from me own my data? There is a movement called E Foundation. It's a de-Googled uh, form of Android that's designed to be as easy to use as, as Apple. Um, and it was started by um, Gail Duval, who's, uh, who did a free version of Linux back in the, in the 90s way back in the the Paleolithic of the internet um, but your data is your data that's that's the motto and that's the way it's been set up so but the broader question is well who owns the data if the data is for the public good fantastic but if it's for private interests for to serve commercial interests then I'm skeptical the the second one is um, the 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 as I see it, the, the problem of equal airtime comes down to the filter bubbles that we're subjected to through the behavioural modification algorithms that just want us to keep watching things. And so, as John said, it's, you know, if you just say yes to everything, if you, if you watch a video on, on YouTube, don't, but if you do, you'll see that by default it's set to autoplay the next thing. You have to turn that off. This is called the tyranny of the default. You have to physically go in and tell it to stop collecting data or stop doing things that serve those interests. And so I think the the, the problem is a deeper one in the sense that people are being served up more of what they've seen because, of course, that keeps you engaged. And so this leads to, you know, you end up looking at Nazi websites by accident because you just keep saying yes. Um, I think people themselves need to step back and ask, why am I seeing this? Do I want to see this? And maybe I'll turn off the data collection for a while so that I'm not being served up more of the same that just entrenches more of my view. Um, It's hard to do that if people don't see it as a problem. And so the the, the deepest thing there is the worldview level, which is it's around convenience. I want to see things served up to me. Fantastic. But you're only going to see what the commercial interests think you should see, and it doesn't serve you, it serves them. But try and say that, and then you're a tinfoil hatter, which I've been accused of in the past. Every now and then. Only on days with a Y in them.
2: Uh, I I guess a reflection. I agree with the the challenge you're you're describing. Uh, I think there are some responses uh, that are interesting. So people like uh, The Economist, Wall Street Journal, and other some very famous international publications are joining together on a thing called The the Trust Project. Uh, And that's trying to... um, I guess both codify or describe the, the journalistic uh, approaches that they, they support and they, they, they endorse as, as publications, and also uh, to prove that they were the ones that published a piece. And so one of the, one of the challenges that we, uh, I always use when we're talking about the self-sovereign or digital identity is says who? So if I make an assertion about something, says who? Says who, that's right. Says who, you've got a degree from a university, whatever it is. Um, so unless I can prove the says who, or it comes back to a meaningful answer, then you, you have every right to be uh, sceptical about whether the veracity of what I'm saying is right. And, and I think we, one of the interesting things is we will end up falling back on, on um, uh, authori- uh, trust authorities, if like, you know, who do we end up trusting as a, as a source of truth uh, if we don't have access ourselves to the, the raw scientific data, shall we say, and we obviously, in a sense, can't do that because we're not necessarily the scientist doing the, the piece of work that gives you the data. So it's a, it's a phenomenon that's increasingly difficult, but I think the you know, optimist in me is, uh, goes to the point of you know, digital signing of data, so you know the veracity of data from its original source, and then you know the, publica- the publication of that data, you know the organization that published the data, and you kind of work your way back to the point where you go, okay, I'm, I'm satisfied, that, that looks like it's real. That, that you're right. There's, I think you're, you're absolutely right. So the, the point was that you know, there's so much noise out there that people go to kind of they, they, you go to the source you you prefer, right. and that that goes to a bit of the confirmation bias and the uh, kind of availability bias we all have. Uh, we tend to go to a, a place that makes us feel more comfortable about the, the about the re- environment we're in because it sort of promotes the beliefs we already have. Um, it's not. That's why I was saying it earlier. I, I try to make myself see things that I don't necessarily agree with because that's a way of kind of trying to counter that self-fulfilling bias that you typically have.
5: Yeah, so the, the short answer to that is that yes. As a, I, mean, I mean, I'm a scientist by training, and so it comes down to sampling, the sampling bias. If you're only ever seeing you know one, one part of one aspect of one population, then yes, indeed, that's what you, you see. So um, how do you break out of the confirmation bias or the or the, I don't, know, I don't know what you want to call it, if, if there's a term for it, but the, what, what the algorithms serve up to you because it's, been, it's clear that you respond to this. Hmm. So, um, um, the Fox reflex bias... Fox News as well as ABC. Yep. Pardon? You watch yep. Fox News as well Yes, as yes. Yes, as well as yes. yes. Actually, I, I, yeah. I make it a point to watch Andrew Bolt yeah. because I disagree with almost everything he says, yeah. but, yep. but it's important because that is actually a worldview that lives in the world, and he represents... He, he, he represents a particular perspective on the world that I need to be aware of if I'm claiming to have any sort of, you know, holistic view. It's, which is not possible, but how do you counteract the desire to only listen to people that agree with you? Yeah. Um, so, yes, if I, when I tell my students this, that, you know, you should go and listen to Andrew Bolt and, and Peter yeah. Credlin, then yeah. then they scream for a while and they say, but you've got to do it yeah. okay. because... They live in the world.
1: And you can tweak even things like your social media. You, this is old stuff, but like stuff that you wouldn't actually like. Um, follow things that you wouldn't ordinarily support and then unfollow. Uh, tweak it so that you can see stuff that it would be out of your normal realm or out of your, your usual purview. Uh, we need to be challenged by those other perspectives because sometimes that's the step or the, the little nudge that we need in the other direction that allows us to understand, as Joe said, the other world views, the other perspectives. We need to be a bit brave about doing that too because it can push us in ways that we don't like.
0: OK, do we have any pressing questions from the right-hand side? <laughs> no, we're all good? OK, shall we do the exercise again and see... Again? See if anybody's opinions have changed. Have, have the panel convinced you
1: one way or the other. So do you remember this end was optimism? That end was pessimism. Low agency and high agency. Where do you sit now or stand now? Apologies for anyone who came late. This is a thing called the poll game. <laughs> so, the question is in terms of digital identities and smart cities, do you feel more optimistic or pessimistic? And then, how do you feel around the, the capacity for change or shifting your response to that, whether you have low, sorry, high agency or low agency or high agency? And then the other. So, yeah. So, how do
5: you... Optimism? Optimism? Optimism this way. The more optimistic you are, the further up. So, this is like a, a dial. The more pessimistic you are, the further back. Then this way, if you feel you have more agency, this way, or less agency, this way. Raise your hand if you've shifted from last time. Okay. Now Bridget will ask you why have you shifted?
7: Um, the potential for the SSI technology which i wasn't aware of i think is practical and positive um, we didn't talk about facial recognition at all <laughs> otherwise i'd probably be back over there again yeah I was, that's one of the names.
1: yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Um, who else had shifted Jill, <laughs> you have shifted do you mind no mm-hmm.
4: mm-hmm. um I, I was stimulated by the discussion around you have to take responsibility for yourself and you can't blame it on everybody else. So you have to do what you can do to uh, shape and change the situation that you're in as much as you are possible, as you, as you possibly can. The conflict I have around that is being risk-averse and knowing that my data is being collected but also recognising that I need to look at positions from multiple perspectives. I don't know how to uh, sit with that tension in myself because part of me is saying I want to take back control, but the way that I take back control is not exposing myself. But in reality, you have to expose yourself because you need to be open to multiple ways of looking at things in order to be able to shape the way that you are. So that, for me, is still a tension that I have not resolved and probably won't.
1: Have a perspective and hold it lightly. (laughs) Do you mind if I ask you? Because you have shifted quite a lot.
7: I maybe shifted a bit towards optimism. Yeah like I don't still don't feel I can do much about it personally like I still want to go around using the e-scooters and I still want to look at stuff on Instagram when I'm bored and things like that so I'm not going to probably change that but it seems like everyone is in consent that we should do something about it and that we don't want to give the data and it seems like I didn't know that before but there's lots of initiative kind of to make it more make it better like make it There's whatever this uh, Apple thing is that is supposed to be as easy as Apple and even safer. I don't know if that's a thing, but apparently smart people are trying to do things (laughs) in the right direction, so (laughs) that makes me feel optimistic.
0: Excellent. We're all
1: smart.
3: (laughs) Well we not. Other people.
1: Yeah, we're smart. Is there anyone else who shifted who would like to share why they shifted? (coughs)
3: Yeah, so for me, like the standout point was you guys are talking about like the resource distribution in cities. So optim like collecting data to better distribute resources, like including like traffic or as you said, like reverse sense of salt and like silicon and stuff like that. Because you know, they are increasingly becoming more scarce and, and you know, by, by collecting data I guess. And like using it in a wholesome way, I guess you know, you can better optimise the distribution of these resources. So, I moved to the more optimistic yep. um, side of the things yep. because of that. Yep.
1: Thank you.
0: There's no, a lot up. less people in the fence-sitting area. Yeah. So, people was... have actually made a choice in yes. some direction, yeah. which is ni- really which is... nice to see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank so, you. So, um, I think we'll wind up here, yeah, but on. I would like to leave you all with a final comment from each of our panel members of their their positive takeaway message for
2: you? John? Oh, anyone? I'm glad we have to go positive. That's going to be a challenge. but anyway, No, <laughs> not for me. Um, so, th- th- thank you for the comment about there are, there are people that are looking at better ways of doing things. Uh, the, the founder of the World Wide Web, as we would like to think of him, Tim Berners-Lee, has just released Solid, which is a way of uh, you managing data about you in the best way you can, uh, in things called pods, and the stuff I do is the self-sovereign identity and that's uh, another worldwide phenomenon. So yeah, I have, I have reasons to be positive, but I'm also, I guess, cautious because it's entirely possible to do really stupid things with technology, even if you have smart people doing stuff. So and laws of unintended consequences. So we have, to, we have to keep our wits about us, all of us. The positives you can take away are
5: that you, it is possible for you to do small acts of defiance. Um, So, you can change the browser you use from from Google Crime, as I call it, (laughs) to Firefox, which was created by Mozilla, which is what Netscape became after it died, of course. And so, they're explicitly um, using it for privacy purposes. Or if you really want to go anonymous, use um, the Tor browser, Um, but maybe not. Um, Depends on whether you want to call more attention to yourself by going anonymous, uh, you can use... There are various tools. As I said, there's Signal. There's, there's various things that you can use, um, secure messaging apps. Uh, but have a look at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, eff.org. Uh, and they also have a, 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 sub, a subsection called Surveillance Self-Defense. So, ssd.eff.org. Um, because there's... And there's lots of resources there for, you know, taking back control of your data. Um... You know, and, it, and it's not about hiding, it's about controlling who knows what about you. Mm. It's just that the, the default position of most of these organisations is that we want your data and if you want to use this, you know, you've seen all these annoying things and, you know, by using this website, you agree to our cookie policy. Yes. I don't even know what yeah.
4: that
5: means. Yeah. There's no no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? okay. I'm, okay, I'm cool with that. Yeah. It's like, well, where's, where's the option to opt out? Yeah. There isn't one. And that's the thing that I find obscene, is that it's not possible to opt out of this unless you take steps to opt out, and that requires going extreme. Um, So, yes, look at um, surveillance self-defence at Electronic Frontier Foundation, there's lots of links there, or privacytools.io, and there's there's no shortage of of places that do this. If you want to, if you want to take back some control of your data, because your data is your data, I believe. And that's something. That's what I think self-sovereign identity is about. It's that I am me, and I shouldn't need you to tell me that I'm me.
1: Uh, You've both said things that I was going to say. Um, It's respect is a word that doesn't often enter this conversation. So respect for autonomy, autonomy, that self-sovereign identity is about respect for ourselves and respect for others. Um, that when we give over data, we encourage other, others to do the same. So those little acts of defiance um, and and thinking through what it is that we choose to say yes to because we can say no uh, and we can ship, make little tweaks that will encourage more no's that we often need. So, yeah. Um, I'd just like to
0: add that uh, Swinburne and 460 are currently working together on a self-sovereign identity project. So, we will be putting um, results on the Swinburne Smart Cities website. But Jill is going to tell you a little bit about it. Okay. So, what I'm doing is
4: I'm working with 460 Degrees and we're looking at the social and psychological impact of digital wallets on people like you, the public. So, if you're interested in being part of that research and coming to workshops or being part of focus groups or in depth interviews, then please come and talk to me. I'm very happy to give you my business card and you're very welcome to become part of that and as it grows and shapes. So have your say.
0: Yes, be part of shaping our future.
1: Yeah, yay. It's great that there are so many of you here. It's a pretty bleak afternoon in many ways. Although the rain was, was, hail was was predicted and we didn't get it. Positive Uh, thing. So, yeah, we just really appreciate being able to have this conversation and for it to be a shared conversation is great. Thanks for playing the poll that game. Yeah, thank you. Let's clap all of us.
0: You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.